0: From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. Your host is Megan Keita. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, Megan spoke with Carissa Minnick, class of 2012, a civic design manager with The Lab in Washington, D.C., As we do with most of these interviews, the conversation began by asking how and when Carissa became interested in her occupation.
1: Probably like many people, it kind of happened a bit by accident. I started out leaving Muhlenberg and really having a strong interest in food access issues. And so right after graduation, I got an internship, which turned into a job in DC focused on food access and local food access issues. I did that for about five years and kind of got to the point where I felt like addressing food access was somewhat downstream. Um, If people were experiencing food insecurity, that meant that there was probably a larger issue of income inequality that wasn't being addressed and really wanted to go a little further upstream. And so I had just finished graduate school I went to George Washington University, got my master's in public administration, and was ready to, to look to local government as a way to continue to serve my neighbors. I really love the local aspect of the work that I was doing and the work that I could get to continue to do, but to get to do it on a, a larger scale and to address broader issues, more holistic issues, like the whole person than just focused on food access. And so, I have now been in my on my team for about 6 years, but I have had a couple different roles that have just evolved since I first joined there.
2: Can you tell me about how your roles have evolved
1: there? Yeah, so when I joined the team, I was doing kind of a mix of just program management and uh, operational support for the team. Our team is a mix of social scientists and data scientists, and so a lot of the work that we do is um, our clients, if you will, our fellow government agencies. DC is really a unique place to work in terms of local government because we are both a city, a county, and a state in terms of the functions that we have to provide. And so we're a pretty large, a large government entity. We have over 30,000 employees, over 70 different agencies, um, and a lot of services that we need to provide. So On any given day, we're working with, we might be working with uh, the police department, thinking about public safety issues. We might be working with human services on food access, might be thinking about behavioral health and emergency response with the Department of Behavioral Health. The school district, really anything that touches a resident is fair game. And so the work that I was doing when I first joined the team was really thinking about assisting those research projects and evaluation projects. We do a lot of randomized control trials. So this is sort of, it's a, if that's a new concept, uh, it's it's sort of flip a coin, uh, create, we, we think about it in a lot of times in a medical context where we're doing drug trials. So you sort of have your treatment and your placebo, we call it treatment and control. Um, and we try to see if our, uh, the thing that we're we're doing has the intended impact. One of our largest studies was with the DC police department where about, again, about six years ago, the police department was rolling out body-worn cameras, which was something that was happening across the country as a, and being held up as a way to uh, create accountability in our police departments. And we wanted to know, is that working? Is that doing what we we think it might be doing? And so we had this really unique opportunity where we were able to assign half of the police force Body worn cameras for a six month period, while half continued not to have them, and then the the department fully rolled them out to all officers. But that gave us this really interesting moment of six months to do a natural experiment and see do those cameras have an effect on use of force, complaints against an officer, et cetera. Um, and so those are the kinds of projects that that our team gets to work on. My role in supporting those things it started to grow in this direction of human-centered design pretty early on actually. We uh, we were a new team, a brand new team to city government. Uh, we were just trying to get ourselves sort of known to other agencies. And we decided, our director at the time had this idea for an event called Formapalooza. The idea was let's make government services more accessible to residents. And to do that let's host this event where we bring residents and government together around the forms that give everybody the most grief and we we redesign them and we use behavioral insights we use plain language we think about other best practices from human centered design and we redesign forms that work for everyone and it was really popular <laughs> people love to hate on forms um everybody has a story of a form that you know uh, cause them frustration, uh, but you know we can joke about forms just being frustrating things that we have to do. But forms are these uh, the front door of services in many in many cases um, that can be really like vital services for for residents. So if I can't figure out how to get through the application process for food assistance, food stamps, or or SNAP, then I might not be able to feed my family. And so you know th- these have really important implications for equity and access. So we hosted this first event it was really popular and other agencies started to come to us and say, "Hey, I I really want to work with you on redesigning our application forms." Fast forward a couple years, the COVID pandemic hit. Um we kind of had to like drop everything that we were doing and and sort of go in emergency response mode and our team was called upon again to think about how do we How do we stand up uh, pandemic unemployment insurance? This was a completely new thing that the government had never provided before, and we didn't have the infrastructure in place to do it. And so not only did we need to stand up this thing, but we needed to do it in a way that residents could easily access and easily understand in a moment of of crisis and fear. Um, How am I going to get paid? And so our team helped design application forms for this. We helped think through this. the whole process—not just the what are the questions, but how is somebody going to come to this form? How are they feeling? You know, can we appeal? You know, be empathetic in our design and understand that somebody is is really in a low moment when they're coming to us for assistance, and design with that in mind. Think about what documentation we need to make sure that we're giving assistance to people who are truly in need, but also uh, not placing an undue burden on them at the same time. And so. All of that kind of played out in the pandemic, or at least in the first, six six months of the pandemic, and it became really clear that the work that we were doing was sort of this new sort of pillar within the lab at DC, which was around human-centered design, or we call resident-centered design, and so we formalized that about a year and a half ago, and so now I have moved into this role to lead this team of five civic designers And the work that we do, again, is just broadly, how do we make government services more accessible to residents?
2: And can you kind of tell me what that looks like beyond forms? I mean, obviously forms are a big part of it, since that's how people come into government services. But can you kind of give some other examples of the work your team does?
1: Absolutely. So human-centered design for me really centers around empathy. And just thinking about how A resident is feeling um and and what's what they're thinking when they need a government service so uh, a couple examples i like to give one is there's this well when a resident let's say a resident really needs assistance to pay for their electric bill maybe their electric's been cut off what would a resident google or who would a resident call what office would they show up at we try to do the uh to really put ourselves in the shoes of a resident to think about the language that they're using and and their thought process, who the trusted messengers are for things, to design then an experience that may include an application form, but it may not, and think about it from start to finish. So I need help paying for my electric bill to my lights got turned back on. In D.C. and in many other states, there is a program called LAHEAP, most people probably don't know that, especially if you don't work in government. So I would probably not go to Google and type in DC LAHEAP to get myself right to the place where that application form that I need to fill out. I might Google help paying my electric bill. A resident should not have to know that the LAHEAP program is the one that they they need to go to for utility And uh, They should not have to know that that's in the Department of Energy and Environment. They should just know my government is here to help me if my lights get shut off. And so that's the orientation that we take in our work is thinking from start to finish what that user journey is. And so we do a lot of mapping too. You can just imagine a, a giant whiteboard. Um, we sit down with agencies and we tell them, we ask them, okay, what's, that first, what's the first thing? How do people show up to you? Um, how do they find out uh, that they need to talk to you in the first place? What are all of those steps they have to take in the journey and where are the places that people get stuck or they they fall off or dead end in that process? And that helps us think about how we can potentially redesign that process so that those those errors or or frustrations don't don't come up in the future. Another example, one time we uh, worked with the Department of Transportation on reserved disability parking, and so we This is, um, you know, DC is a city. We don't have a lot of street parking. This is an application basically to say, I have a physical disability. I need a reserved spot, street spot in front of my home just for me. To do that, when we sat down with, with folks in the agency to figure out like, what's the process to get that, to make that happen? We realized that there was a paper form you had to fill out. You had to take it to your doctor to have them sign something. You had to take it to a notary. You had to take it to the Department of Motor Vehicles. And then you had to take it to the Department of Transportation. And when we mapped that all out and we're sitting around the table, we all kind of said, hmm, (laughs) this is an application for someone with a physical mobility challenge. And we've just asked them to make four trips just to apply for this service. What can we do to minimize that burden? And I say that, too, because I think sometimes people look at government and think, oh, it's so dysfunctional. You know, it's just so common sense. How come they don't just make this process simpler? But a lot of times what happens is I don't think people are government employees are malicious in their intent. Like, how complicated can we make this for someone? But we are sort of every human is burdened with their curse of knowledge. If I process a driver's license application at the DMV, I probably process dozens of of applications every single day. I know that piece of paper. I know that process inside and out. I'm going to skip steps when I explain it to someone, or I'm going to assume that other people know all of those little, little details um, in the process. And that's where the breakdown happens because they don't. And then there's, you, you introduce frustration. And so our job is to kind of be the, the outside perspective that doesn't, process, dozens of DMV applications every day, comes in and can sit down with them and start to ask those questions about like, well, what happens What happens if I don't have a copy of my birth certificate? What happens if, you know, I changed my name? Uh, What, you know, all of those inevitable things that do turn up for people to really figure out what is the process look like for a lot of different scenarios and what are all those granular steps so that we can then explain it back to residents in a way that makes sense.
2: I'm wondering if you have like a typical work day and if you do what that looks like.
1: It's a mix of direct interaction with residents. It's a mix with meeting with other agencies that we work with, uh, meeting with my own team, and then there's always just like the the sort of practical things that have to get done to enable enable all of those activities. So to give an example in this past week, I might have Meeting with our Department of Aging and Community Living, we're we're working right now to address senior food insecurity. It's the highest, DC has the highest rate of senior food insecurity in the nation. Um, and so we're we've been doing a listening tour and having conversations with residents, focus group conversations to really get at why, what are those barriers that are in place? Because we have all of these services. So why aren't they being utilized or why are they not working for people? So having conversation with with those agency partners to figure out what our next steps are. I'll have I, I supervise a team of five, so I'll have some one on one meetings with people just doing sort of general check ins about their project portfolio and troubleshooting things. I'd say at least once a week I'm out in the community doing some kind of interaction with residents. So a lot of times we will do focus group conversations, one on one interviews. Um, co-design sessions co-design is this a practice of sort of bringing residents together to co-develop a solution um, uh, you know i can sit behind my desk and come up with what i think is the best solution for for a challenge that residents are facing but it's usually a lot better if i do it with the residents experiencing the challenge um and we can grapple together with with the difficult you know elements of the problem and figure out a solution that's going to work for everyone and so we do a lot of those in the community as well. So a mix of those things. And then there's just the practical things that you have to get done, like, um, by, you know, putting in purchase, purchase requests so that we can host those, those kind of community sessions or reserve space and all of that kind of thing. Um, you know, that, uh, that needs to happen too, to enable the, the other aspects of the work.
2: And can you speak to what are the most challenging and the most rewarding aspects of your job?
1: I'll start with what's most rewarding. I love the the local nature of my work. I'm a DC resident. I have been for the past 11 years. I love that I get to serve my neighbors. I love uh, that I get to see the very tangibly the work that I'm doing and go out in the community and interact with the people that I'm serving. And I think local work is really special and unique in that way. I also really enjoy the variety of topics that I get to work on. So in my past six years, I've I've thought about education issues. I've thought about homelessness and housing, public safety and justice, environmental challenges, like it runs the gamut. And so I really enjoy getting to be a generalist and think about a whole, learn about new areas. But also I think one of the, the benefits of this work is being a generalist means that I'm coming in with uh, a curiosity and kind of hopefully helps uh, keep any blinders on that I might have if I come in thinking I know everything. Um, I get to come in and ask a lot of questions and, and learn constantly about about new topic areas that affect my neighbors and myself. The thing that's probably most challenging in government for me is that government can be really slow for good reason. There are checks and balances that are in place to ensure that government is acting in the best interests of its residents, being frugal and and good stewards, tax dollars, all of those things. But we're held to a very different standard than I think you would be if you're working in the private sector. And so, again, it it might seem so simple sometimes uh, from the outside to think, oh, you know, why doesn't government provide X service? It's usually a lot more complicated than just just being able to say, we should do that, let's do that. An example that we've been working on uh, more recently is providing gift cards to incentivize participation among residents at, say, like our focus groups or our co-design sessions. It sounds fairly simple. We should provide a gift card to someone for, for the time that they come and the expertise and knowledge that they share. But it's pretty complicated. We have to write policies and procedures. They have to go through legal counsel. We have to come up with, go through a whole procurement process with our finance office to get the cards, all kinds of checks and balances that have to be put in place to make sure that those cards are kept safely because no one wants a government employee to run off with you know, thousands of dollars in gift cards. All of that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. But I think Sometimes from the outside, it just seems so simple. Um, go buy a gift card, give it to a resident. And and it's not.
2: I uh, am kind of familiar with that myself because we've mm-hmm. tried to give out gift cards to like incentivize survey participation. Yeah. And it's like, well, then they have to fill out a tax form. And it's like, what? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: So, uh, yeah, I understand that those are not as simple as they seem. And can you share what guidance or advice you would give to someone who is interested in doing the kind of work that you do? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think the, the beauty of human-centered design is that as long as you interact with at least one other human in your work, you can do it. Um, whether that is, you know, a client or a constituent, but also even just a coworker. It's again starting from sort of stepping, taking a step back, thinking about what the the person who you're trying to communicate may or may not know, what their circumstance might be. But you can if you if you kind of take that framework, you can implement it in any environment. And so if people specifically though are interested in doing this kind of work in a government context, you don't need to find a job necessarily that's got human-centered design in the title. In fact, I think that's my that's my um little passion is is for more people to join government with this mindset. Um, so maybe you're, you know, maybe you're in a role where you're helping run a housing a housing program in your local government. Your job description may say nothing about human-centered design, but that doesn't mean you can't infuse those principles in the way that you operate that program. It really comes down to listening, asking people about their experiences, doing some, some mapping of what what an ex what a resident's experience is going through your through your service or your program asking other people that have gone through it what they think could be better about that process um and and trying to implement those changes so if it's of interest i mean i think there's there's so much need for this in any government context um and joining you know finding a position within government regardless of the title it gives you an opportunity to put that in practice
0: This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by the Office of Alumni Affairs at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded remotely and engineered in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.